Good morning. I invite you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Today's passage comes from Psalms 32. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is in no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, everyone who is faithful, pray to you immediately. When the great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you to show the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled by bit or rattle, or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday morning gathering at First City Church. My name is Paul, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Now, to get one thing off my chest, just in case you think Steve and I coordinated outfits today, since we're wearing both, both blue, they're very colorful, we did not. Uh, that, that would mean we were much more prepared or that we were much more fashion sense than we actually are. Um, so as Steve mentioned, this, this morning we will transition to, into a preaching series. We're actually picking it back up in the Psalms. This is something we typically do every summer, and we're picking back up. That's why we're in Psalm 32. Now, if you wonder why the Psalms, let me, let me say this. Different texts found in the pages of Scripture, they shape you and I differently in distinct ways. For example, the Ten Commandments... The Sermon on the Mount, those are explicitly instructing us how to live. And so they grow and mature our understanding of right and wrong. T texts like Genesis or the Gospels, they invite us into story. A story that transcends cultural stories, telling us we need to prove our worth or validate our identity and justify ourselves. In the Psalms... We are drawn into imagery and poetry. You and I have been created not only to think, but also to feel. As we read the Psalms, or maybe as we sing the Psalms, one of the ways we are shaped, we have the opportunity to grow at experiencing and ex exercising emotions like joy, sadness, anger, even, even the emotion of confusion. This contrasts how many of us experience emotion, either shutting them down or expressing them absent of self-control, maybe using them in manipulative ways. The Psalms invite us to grow at experiencing and exercising emotion. Now, while the Psalms help us experience and express emotion, that does not mean they do not teach us wisdom. 
Some psalms, in fact, are classified as wisdom psalms. They have a reflective tone that explicitly teach us how to live a life that is happy and blessed. Psalm 32 falls into such a category. It begins, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. The person who is blessed, the person who experiences his or her sin forgiven, that's, there's, there's a match there. The person who is blessed is the person who experiences his or her sin being forgiven. Rather than this person being condemned or cursed, this person is joyful. This person is happy. Of course, the reality is many of us struggle to experience the joy of being forgiven. We need to be reminded. So the Broadway musical, Les Mis, begins with a group of convicts, and they are hauling a ship into a dock, and they are chanting, look down, look down, don't look them in the eye, look down, look down, you're here until you die. I, I was never in musicals as a kid, you can probably tell. So then, then you hear a prison guard. His name is Javert. He's played by Russell Crowe in the 2012 film version. He addresses a prisoner. Now, prisoner 24601, your time is up and your parole's begun. You know what that means? The prisoner responds, yes, it means I'm free. No. Follow the letter to your itinerary. The badge of shame you'll show until you die. It warns you're a dangerous man. This is how we're introduced to the story of Jean Valjean. To Javert, Jean Valjean will never escape being called prisoner 24601. He will always be defined by the ugliness of his past transgressions and iniquities. Choosing to sin certainly dehumanizes us. It makes us less than human. But the, the song and the interaction between Javert and Jean Valjean c- communicate how the consequences of sin can dehumanize us too. We feel like we can't look one another in the eye. Rather than being defined as an image bearer of God, we tend to become defined by past transgressions and sins. We feel we need to hide from one another. We need to withdraw. Some of you feel like this from time to time. Past sin has far too much power in your life. It robs you of your humanity. And when those feelings of being defined by past sin surface, you beat yourself up. You wallow in self-pity. Maybe you strive to try to earn forgiveness and restoration rather than experience the forgiveness and restoration offered by the Lord. Psalm 32 will invite you into a restored humanity, the beauty of understanding and experiencing forgiveness, how that leads to freedom and flourishing. That's our big idea this morning. Experiencing forgiveness leads to freedom and flourishing. Now, to explore this big idea, we're going to consider three lessons or three, three different things we can draw from Psalm 32. One, resisting forgiveness. 
This is what we can experience when we reject forgiveness, receiving forgiveness, how we live, how we, how we, the, the, the type of life we embrace to embrace this gift of forgiveness and rewards of forgiveness. I, I hesitated to use that word reward, but, but I wanted to preserve the alliteration. I, I hesitated because we often associate that word with something we earn or something we strive for rather than a reward that's being gifted to us. Just as there are consequences of resisting forgiveness, which we'll explore more of in a moment, there are consequences of receiving forgiveness. That doesn't mean we earn those rewards. The psalmist has said the person who is forgiven is happy and joyous. There are benefits or rewards of walking and receiving forgiveness. And so the psalmist is going to invite us into that. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 32. Now, one thing to clarify going forward, the the psalmist is not writing about a specific sin. In fact, the psalmist repeatedly uses three words to reference sin, words we read in our translation as sin, transgression, and iniquities. And those words, they capture a variety of intent When it comes to sin, maybe conscious or unconscious or rebelling or missing the mark of of how we are to live. By including these general categories and not identifying one specific sin, the psalmist has opened the door to applying the benefits of forgiveness expressed here to a multitude of situations. Stealing, lying, manipulating, hoarding wealth a lack of generosity, embracing forms of gluttony, lust, pride, arrogance, wounding others with our words because we are angry or insensitive, regardless of the type of sin. You can proclaim Psalm 32 as truth. There is forgiveness in the Lord. Experiencing that forgiveness leads to freedom and flourishing. Now, before we get to that freedom and flourishing, let's look at how the psalmist describes this disposition of resisting forgiveness. In verse 3, we encounter the language, when I kept silent. One way you and I respond to past sin in our life is to hide it or conceal it. We don't like to name it. We like to deny it or dismiss it. We try to discredit the significance of our actions. When we respond that way, we resist forgiveness. And when that happens, rather than experiencing what it means to be free and flourish, we flounder. The psalmist says, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Now whether it is guilt or shame or, or the fear of being found out, or simply, simply the conviction of sin. The author is describing the weight of unconfessed actions. That, that description clarifies that we don't simply experience the consequences of sin in our minds, knowing we did something wrong. As embodied beings, we experience the consequences of sin within our bones, 
within our muscles and within our guts. When we resist forgiveness, more than affecting us psychologically, sinful behavior that we have been silent about, it affects us physiologically. Sin doesn't just poison our mind, it poisons our whole being. Some of you are all too familiar with this embodied feeling of unconfessed sin. Maybe today, maybe sometime in the past, you know how fear of being exposed is expressed by your body. Your heart races. You get anxious. Beads of sweat begin to surface on your forehead. You lose your appetite. You want to withdraw and isolate. There are things that shall not be named in your life. And we think by not naming them, but by keeping them hidden in the dark, we decrease and deny their power. But the psalmist is teaching the opposite is true. By holding on to them, by not naming them, we are making those things more powerful, magnifying the influence they have over us. So, so there was a sermon delivered at a church many of us uh, attended before we planted First City. And it challenged us to consider the, the, the pastor, uh, something the pastor referred to as the last 10%. The, the pastor explained, we are typically open with God and with others about 90% of our struggles with sin. But there is this last 10% that we tend to, to keep in the dark, that we try to keep hidden, that we will not name. We try and try and try to deny its power, but our bodies won't let us. That last 10%, it has the power to dehumanize. It leads us to disintegrate internally. It leads us to distance ourselves from God and to create fractures in our relationships with one another. What is that last 10% for you? What does your body tell you that you are not confessing? Now, to be clear, just because our bodies feel anxious or are unsettled, that doesn't mean there is sin we are being silent about. That there are times we have committed sin where we have violated God's law and God's will, where our bodies, designed by God, they should communicate that something is off. We should feel the need to experience forgiveness. But there are other times we experience these feelings where we are burdened by rules made up by men, made up by the devil himself, or made up by ourselves, where our fallen bodies betray us. The language in the psalm cl clarifies the psalmist here is not experiencing false guilt, but feelings associated with actual unconfessed sin. So those feelings you experience in your body, the sadness and sorrow you have for unconfessed actions to the point that we lose sleep or feel anxious and unsettled, that is a sign of God's grace working in you. When our hearts are hard, when our bodies refuse to be burdened by the evil things we have done, when we silence sorrow and sadness, we are missing out on a gift. This embodied feeling we have done something wrong, when we have done something wrong, what some people refer to as our conscience, what others may attribute to the work of the Spirit, that is a gift. It is something to give thanks for. Because being aware of unconfessed sin, the last 10%, feeling the weight of that, it will lead to experiencing forgiveness from the Lord that leads to freedom and flourishing, not floundering. 
So if this unconfessed sin dehumanizes us, how are we restored? How do we experience what our original humanity, what we were designed for? So let's, let's briefly talk about what it means to embrace receiving forgiveness. If the disposition of rejecting forgiveness is concealment, the disposition of receiving forgiveness or experiencing forgiveness is confession. Rather than conceal, we confess. Rather, rather than stay silent, we surrender silence. The psalmist says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. In verse 7, you are my hiding place. In receiving forgiveness, the psalmist embraces vulnerability. Receiving forgiveness means we take off the garments that we have used to cover our sin. We take responsibility and ownership. We acknowledge the ugliness of our actions. We stop blaming others and we stop wallowing in shame and guilt and self-pity. To receive forgiveness, we do not stay silent. We are open to being exposed. The psalmist reflects on a moment of exposure in verse 5. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The person who experiences forgiveness understands the reality of sin in his or her life, and that person has surrendered hiding. They give up the last 10% because that person understands there is no earning forgiveness or proving being worthy of being forgiven. As we understand that, we are free to confess. Here's, here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book, Life Together. You are a sinner, a great, desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to a God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. God has come to you to save the sinner. Be glad. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to save you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. Bonhoeffer is articulating how a right understanding of self and a right understanding of the goodness and graciousness of God frees us to confess, frees us to be exposed. We do not have to hide. We do not have to stay silent because God does not relate to sinners like how Javert relates to Jean Valjean, persistently calling him prisoner 24601, reminding him of his transgressions and sins. Instead, God has revealed himself as tender and kind. Someone who forgives. As we sang earlier, our sin is great, but his mercy is more. For you who are in Christ, God promises to wash our sins away and make us clean. Here's how this is communicated in 1 John. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There there is this relationship between repentance and experiencing forgiveness. The psalmist is inviting us into reflecting on the experience of that relationship. As we experience forgiveness, we repent. As we repent, we experience forgiveness. We are free to walk in the light. We are free to confess our sins. We experience how he cleanses us from all sin and from all unrighteousness. The person who has encountered conviction of sin, he or she is compelled to confess because the only way to experience, to truly receive forgiveness is to surrender, to be exposed. And that will lead to freedom and flourishing, not floundering. Now let's, let's talk about the, the, these rewards of forgiveness. These are two benefits the psalmist invites us in to understand. Ways our life changes for the better as we experience forgiveness. The first is freedom. In verse 6, the psalmist describes protection from the rushing of water as it rises in a river. Rather than experience such a threat, the psalmist is safe. The psalmist is protected from such harm. In verse 7, the psalmist explicitly says, you protect me from trouble. So this protection that God's people experience, on the one hand, we know we are forgiven. We are delivered from the consequences that we deserve for sin. Experiencing God's wrath, being separated from God. But beyond that, there is an earthly freedom that God's people often experience that point to this eternal freedom. The consequences of guilt and shame, the fear of being found out, being defined how others view us, we're immune from those things. When we are safe, when we are protected, when we are free, forgiveness opens the door for us to experience healing and wholeness. When we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, rather than our clothes that are infected and tainted by our sin, when we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, Rather than look down, we look up, and we look one another in the eye. The psalmist continues, you surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance, which means God does not relate to you and I as being defined by a set of digits associated with our past sin, like how Javert relates to Jean Valjean. Instead, we are defined by the deliverance and goodness and favor of the Lord. You are delivered from your past sins. You are set free from the power of shame and guilt and the fear of being exposed. You are victorious. You have been rescued. You have been restored to your original humanity. So if the musical Les Mis provides a picture of how past sin can dehumanize us. There's a different Broadway musical, Hamilton, that gives us a picture of how forgiveness can restore us to our humanity. If you're familiar with Lin-Manuel Miranda's production, you know it tells the story of one of the great authors of the Constitution, Alexander Hamilton. In addition to highlighting his brilliance, along with much of the political adversity he faced, The story invites us into the complexity and brokenness of his personal life, his workaholism, his fighting to prove his worth and value, 
him being consumed with building a personal legacy, him neglecting caring for his wife and son and his sins of adultery. His wife, Eliza, bears the ugliness and wickedness of his sin. So in the musical, her voice is heard passionately, expressing her righteous anger towards his sins of infidelity and her confusion over the role he played in the death of their son. She is then silent for a season. Alexander's voice is eventually heard taking ownership of his past behavior and the consequences of his actions. While he sleeps in the office, she in the bedroom, they have chosen to move uptown. And he eventually asks her, do you like it uptown? Her voice remains silent. We eventually hear someone sing. There are moments that the words don't reach. There's a grace too powerful to name. They are standing in the garden. Eliza's by his side. She takes his hand. Eliza's voice then breaks her silence, and she has heard saying, it's quiet uptown. The statement, while simple, is a statement of assurance, communicating forgiveness and faithfulness and a commitment to work towards restoration of relationship. Many voices then break in to singing like a chorus of angels. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? Forgiveness. Can you imagine? The forgiveness she extends serves to restore his humanity. No longer are they adversaries. They are again allies. Rather than continuing to look down, he is freed to look up. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? Lin-Manuel Miranda communicates how the power of forgiveness transcends all the grief and all the sorrow that we experience because of past transgressions. Rather than being defined by sin, forgiveness sets us free. Forgiveness, can you imagine? Brothers and sisters, where our sin has destroyed our humanity, God has stepped in and offered forgiveness to restore our humanity. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? In so many ways, it is beyond our comprehension how a righteous God can forgive an unrighteous people. In our culture, we think we get what it means that God loves us. We don't really know what it means. We think it is a feeling or affection, but it is far more than that. Biblical love is a choice to pursue and desire someone who is unlovable. Pursuing and desiring a people who reject and run from him. God, rather than give us what we deserve, rejecting and running from us, he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He has forgiven our sin. Here's Pastor Timothy Keller. Someone says, oh, God just loves everyone. But such a God is not as loving as the God of the Bible, who because he was holy and loving gave us grace. Because he's holy, because he's loving, that's free, 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 free grace for us. But because he's holy, it was costly grace, infinitely costly grace. When I know that I am the recipient of this kind of costly grace, 
When I know Jesus Christ went to hell's heart for me and was loving and obedient for me, there, that's what changes me. That's tears. That's amazement. That's exhilaration. That's galvanizing. It changes me because at the very same time, it humbles me out of my pride and self-centeredness and it affirms me out of my inferiority and self-pity. It makes me hate my sins because it led to his death, but it forbids me to hate myself because he did it for me to make me free. To this end, one of the most remarkable things I have experienced in ministry is when someone confesses past sin, the last 10%, and hearing someone proclaim to him or her the truth of the gospel. Brother or sister, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There may be consequences, but the Lord does not condemn you. You are free. I know when these words have been spoken over me by my wife or by a brother or sister in Christ or by a pastor in the church, there is great power at being reminded, I am forgiven and I am free. In the gospel, we learn to hate our sin, but not to hate ourselves. We can't because he doesn't hate us, but loves us. So this disposition of hating our sin because it led to his death, while rejecting a disposition to hate self, it leads to a second reward of receiving forgiveness, flourishing. In verse 8, the voice of God enters the conversation declaring, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. My eye on you, I will give counsel. When we walk in repentance, when we experience forgiveness, God promises direction and discernment. It's as if when we resisted forgiveness, our mind, it was, it was cloudy and it was hazy. But after we experience forgiveness, our mind clears and we become confident in how to live. So Karl Barth is a man many consider to be one of the more prominent theologians of the 20th century. He published a number of books that continue to influence pastors and theologians to this day. But Bart had some secret sin in his life that recently came to light, an adulterous affair. And those secret sins, they very much affected his discernment and decision-making abilities. Recently, it was uncovered in his journal, he wrote, a a strange consequence of our experience, and so That was this affair with this woman. A strange consequence of our experience will be that my seminar this summer about the recent history of theology will turn out much more lenient, merciful, cautious than it would have been the case otherwise. See, unconfessed sins of adultery, unconfessed sins where you lack generosity, where you hoard wealth, unconfessed sins where you gossip or where you are envious or jealous of others, it clouds your ability to think. Repentance clears the way to experience discernment and direction from the Lord. You know, we often think reading God's word, 
meditating on God's word, doing the right actions and behaviors, prayer, seeking wisdom from community, or even life experiences. We think that those things give us wisdom and discernment. The, The case made by the author of Psalm 32 is that a byproduct of repentance, of receiving forgiveness, is discernment and direction. Experiencing forgiveness, it leads to flourishing, not floundering. We have his personal counsel or guidance. And when we experience that, that counsel, it plays out in how we live. Here's verse 9. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. You see, someone who is instructed by the Lord, who is responsive to the leading of the Lord, is not dragged along by a bridle like a horse or a mule. We are not are not dehumanized like that. The mention of these animals is providing a picture of creatures that can be stubborn, scattered, and sometimes stupid. An animal that needs to be bridled because it is stubborn is one that will do what it's going to do. If it wants to stay put, you're, you're going to have to pull it forward. If it wants to go right and you want to go left, you're going to have to pull it to the left. In being scattered, any squirrel or bird or person or piece of food will be a source of distraction, drawing it to pull away from a particular trajectory. And and being stupid, those of you who love horses, I'm I'm sorry. A horse or a mule, they are not typically thought of as having good critical thinking skills. In that vein, those characteristics of being stubborn, scattered, and sometimes stupid Animals like horses or mules, they must be bridled to be useful. Those who trust in the Lord, on the other hand, those who walk in forgiveness, they do not need to be controlled with a bit and a bridle to be useful because they surrender and submit to the Lord. So an annual tradition at First City Church, a number of us head off to Louisville in June for an extended weekend of camping. We go really far away, right? No, 20 minutes away. And we do that to enjoy fishing, to breathe in some fresh air. The kids swim at the lake because the the adults don't enjoy swimming at the lake. And we sit around a campfire. If you have yet to join us for one of these trips, let me tell you, you are missing out. So if you're interested in coming next time, fill out one of those connect cards and we'll make sure we get you the information. So this year, Michelle and I took a dog. We have a golden retriever puppy, Maya for the very first time. And here's what I noticed. She needed to be on a a leash the entire time. She would run after any squirrel or goose or kid for that matter. She was sometimes stubborn, oftentimes scattered. I won't say she was stupid because she's my puppy and my family won't speak to me if I call her stupid. Her behavior contrasted that of another family in our church. If you know them, Dan and Aaron Hyde, their dog. It's an enormous German shepherd. I think it's taller than me. Um, Their dog didn't need to be chained. Their dog wouldn't run after every little rabbit or duck or squirrel. Their dog simply remained at their side. Their presence seemed to provide stability and guidance. For the psalmist, the person who is flourishing the one who understands forgiveness. The presence of the Lord provides guidance and stability. They don't need to be micromanaged in how they live with something like a bridle or a bit, like the horse or a mule. 
They flourish apart from that. So the author continues to to differentiate the disposition of one who remains silent, one who conceals his or her sin, as opposed to the one who confesses, the one who receives forgiveness. Many pains will come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. So, So the one who conceals, the one who stays silent, they will experience pain. While the one who confesses, the one who trusts in the Lord, the one who surrenders silence, he or she will flourish knowing God's faithful love surrounds him. Rather than being defined by sin, God's people are defined by grace. So as we conclude, I have have some questions for you. First, let me ask you again. What are you doing with the last 10%? Because of the gospel, you don't have to stay silent about your sin. You don't have to suffer. You are free to confess. If you have that 10%, I doubt I need to remind you about the guilt and fear and being unsettled associated with those, those sinful actions. You know it already. But what you may have forgotten is the power of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Can you imagine how there was a man named Jesus Christ? As he hung on the cross, he was silent, so you don't have to be. He became sin, so you would be delivered for your past sin. His body had nails and thorns penetrating it. He sweat blood. He took on the stress of your sin. His body was dehumanized. So you don't need to hide. You don't need to remain silent. You have a Savior that suffered for you. For the non-Christian in the room, what are you doing with your sin? In verse 6, the the psalmist says, Therefore let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. Immediately. The English Standard Version says it this way, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. If you have not yet trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, may you have ears today. Today is a time when the Lord may be found, but there is a time coming when God will not be found, when the grace of God to forgive will not be accessed. After our death or when Christ returns for the final judgment, pray today. Receive the Lord's forgiveness today. God may yet be found today. Last question. Christian, as you reflect on your past sin, are you looking down? Do you experience division in your relationship with God and with others? Or are you rejoicing at how God restores relationship to sinners like you and I, how he restores our humanity. One of the few instructions in this psalm is verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Being glad in the Lord, shouting for joy. It doesn't mean all circumstances are easy, but the overall disposition of the one who experiences forgiveness, it is joyful. The groaning associated with our silence, 
That groaning is turned into joyful songs of deliverance. So as we consider our relationship to sin after repentance, it is not to continue to to feel sorry for your sin. It is not for your body to continue to feel weighed down by, by your sin. It is not how Jean Valjean is treated by Javert, being defined by your past sin. It is to contemplate the unimaginable, the forgiveness and faithfulness of God. This command to rejoice, it is built on the faithfulness and forgiveness of your Father in heaven. You don't have to rejoice because you earned forgiveness. You don't rejoice because you minimize the consequences of your sin. You rejoice because of your gracious God. People of God, rejoice. You have been set free and not just set free to keep your head down, but to look up. And to flourish, you have been delivered. You have been set free to flourish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ways you have been kind to sinners like us. Thank you. Thank you for sending your son for us. Jesus, thank you for suffering for us. Thank you for for, for forgiving us. Father, forgive us when we remain silent with our sin. Forgive us for when we conceal and hide our sin. Thank you. Thank you for how our bodies experience this reality of unconfessed sin. Anxiety, fear, bones aching. May that turn us to surrender our silence to you. God, help us be a people that live in delight, that confess our sins to you and confess our sins to one another. 